Welcome to Science Island. On today's show, we're talking about meteorites, and not just because they make for cool-looking meteor showers. They also contain hidden clues about how our solar system formed. And scientists like Dr. Ryan Ogliori, who I'll be talking to later in the show, are analyzing them to solve one of the biggest mysteries about the basic building blocks of life. I'm Leah Hitchings. My co-host is Grant Burningham. All of that coming up here on KACRLP 96.1 FM. Um, So Grant, if you were tasked with figuring out how the solar system formed, how would you go about figuring that out? I think I'm really glad I don't have that job because I couldn't even begin to guess how to figure that out. Yeah, it feels like a really big task. And yet it's something that Cosmo chemists are tasking themselves with. Dr. Ryan Ogliori, who's going to be on our show a little later, is one of those cosmochemists, and he is an expert in meteorites and other interplanetary matter. And what they're looking for in meteorites specifically is really the building blocks of the solar system itself, like how it formed. So where does he buy these meteorites or find these meteorites? That was one of the things that I was most interested in talking to him about. I'll definitely be asking him that because every time I go on a hike, I convince myself that I found a really weird rock and it has to be a meteorite. What would a meteorite look like if I were just to find it on a hike? Um, That's a great question. And that's why I think a lot of the times I can convince myself that weird looking rocks are meteorites. I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. And I will definitely be asking Dr. Ogliori that question. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff that sort of sifts down through our atmosphere that cosmochemists in particular are really interested in looking at. And they're looking at it with crazy, just super accelerated tools and microscopes and things that take up entire city blocks to to hopefully figure out if our solar system is unique and that it can support life. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to figure out how I can find one of these on my next hike in uh, Redwood Regional. So let's go ahead and bring on our guest for today's show. Dr. Ryan Ogliori is a cosmochemist and meteorite expert. He's also an assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Ogliori, welcome to Science Island. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Leah. So, Dr. Ogliori, my big question is, why meteorites? What is so (laughs) special about them? That's a very good question. So, we have lots of different meteorites, so they can answer lots of different scientific questions for us. And the thing that I'm interested in um, are the meteorites that are the most primitive. So they're they're very useful because they are um, they're recordings of really the formation of the solar system. So they're little they're little time capsules that the most primitive ones can tell us about these events that happened in the first three or four million years ago, uh, sorry, the first three or four million years of the solar system for formation that happened about four and a half billion years ago. So they record these very important processes that seem to be pretty common in our galaxy of planetary formation. Uh, And we can use very, very uh, precise analytical techniques to measure the chemical and the isotopic composition of these things. Um, so they're very, they're very useful to do really high precision astronomy uh, that we can't do with any other means. Very cool. And where are you finding these super, super old meteorites? <laughs> they, yeah, they, they, fall, they fall really uniformly all over the Earth, but they're easier to find in certain locations. 
So every year, uh, there's a, a group um, from different countries, but I'm more familiar with the, the American group called the uh, Antarctic uh, Search for, for Meteorites. In, so they go to Antarctica, and they're there for six or seven weeks, and they drive snowmobiles around on the ice, and they pick up between two and 500 meteorites every year. Uh, oh, so wow. that's about that's yeah, it's very productive. So that's about half of the meteorites. There's also um, search that go that go to the hot deserts of uh, Morocco, for example, and find uh, meteorites there. So these places are easy to easy to find meteorites because they're deserts, meaning that a rock falling on the ice of the sand has a good chance of surviving for a very long time, and it's easy to spot a black rock on snow on or oh, snow or ice. I so. see. Yeah, so it's it's um, just easier to find them there. It's not like they preferentially fall there. It's just easy to find there. So they also fall in these fantastic fireball events that happen, you know, almost almost every week now. Um, and there's everybody gets recordings of them, uh, so they're very cool to follow on uh, social media and that kind of thing. So those are useful because they're fresh. Uh, they're called falls, so they're fresh meteorites. They haven't been uh, sitting around on the surface of the Earth and been exposed to wind and rain and all these things that change their chemical and isotopic compositions that we're so interested in. Uh, and there's also a chance with all these cell phone videos that people are taking to calculate the, the orbit of the body before it came in, which can tell us where in the asteroid belt that it came from. So those are very useful. Those are called meteorite falls, and those are very useful um, because it's more pristine and we can get the orbital characteristics of that little tiny asteroid. And are meteorites fairly common? Like if, if I come across a really funky looking rock on a hike and I convince mm -hmm. myself that it's a meteorite, like, is there a possibility that I'm right? Uh, almost none, actually. <laughs> They're extremely, <laughs> extremely rare. So, um, they're rarer than gold on Earth. Oh, so, wow. Uh, yeah, so I've um, you know, worked in various labs, and, and uh, we always get letters from people that, that think they found a, a meteorite, and almost 100% of the time, they have not. So, <laughs> so mm. occasionally they have, and uh, my colleague at WashU, Randy Cordova, has a great flow chart that, that tells you um, uh, to look for certain characteristics, like is the outside different than the inside? That's indicative of the fusion crust, the melted exterior of the meteorite as it comes, um, that's formed as it comes to the atmosphere. Um, but they're very, very rare, and it's very rare that somebody's uh, found an odd-looking uh, rock that turns out to be a meteorite. It has happened. It's just very, very rare. <laughs> I'm always looking, and I haven't, I haven't found one yet, but I'm always looking. Oh, I'm sure you are. And once, once you and your colleagues receive these meteorites, I don't know if they're like shipped in the mail or something. What are you looking for? I'm looking at the very, very fine dust um, because we're looking at the most primitive stuff and we want to find stuff that formed really right when the solar system formed. So these are going to be the smaller grains. They likely didn't form in an, in an igneous high temperature process. And once we've identified these interesting components in the meteorite, we call it the matrix. And that's the the really fine-grained, um, glassy and crystalline material that sits in between the chondrules. And then we're interested in analyzing the chemical and isotopic composition of those uh, individual phases. And what, what type of mineral it is tells us how it formed, which will allow us to interpret that chemical and isotopic data um, uh, most precisely. So uh, it's, a, it's this interesting combination of, of 
chemistry techniques and physics techniques and also geology techniques. So you have to understand the rock before you understand that chemistry and, and isotopic composition, which will tell you something about the solar system, how the solar system formed and how we got this incredible diversity of planets that we see now in our, our solar system and seem to exist in other these other planetary systems that we're finding all the time now in our galaxy. And if you were to look at similar meteorites, say, on another planet, would it look fairly similar to the ones that we find here? And what does that sort of tell us about the birth of our solar system? Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, question. We just had this, uh, it was in the, in the news a lot, this interstellar asteroid or comet that just came through the solar system. Uh, which is incredibly exciting for me because we always thought these things existed and we think we, we were pretty sure that we have dust from outside of the solar system in the meteorites. So that, that fine grain component of the meteorites contains about 100 part per million of um, what we call circumstellar condensates. So these, these little tiny grains that are 100 nanometers in size have extremely exotic isotopic compositions that you would only get if they formed in supernovae. So these are these re really exotic things that are very, very small. And if we could have got a piece of that, of that interstellar asteroid or comet that was just identified a month or two ago, that would answer that very important question that you just asked. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think like, is our solar system uh, a good example of, of other planetary systems in the galaxy and right now we just don't know so mm -hmm. i think i i some very strange things seem to happen on, in our solar system and i and you just you have a you have a n of one right so i would love to find other material and we're we're struggling to um understand how how in how representative these exotic um interstellar grains that we do have how representative those are of other planetary systems and you talked about comets. Is that something that um, you guys are able to look at as well, how those are made up? Yeah, comets are very... So most of the meteorites we have in our collections, perhaps all of them come from uh, asteroids. These are these are lithified bodies. They're solid. So when that, body's, when that small body comes into our atmosphere, it's likely to uh, be large enough and solid enough to make it to the ground to exist as a meteorite. And we do have, and you can see cometary material several times a year in the meteor showers that we see. These uh, Most of the meteor showers really, except for the one, the Geminids that we just had, are from cometary dust streams. Uh, mm. So that stuff is likely, so comets are this mixture of rock and ice. We think they're little time capsules from the very, um, the very birth of our solar system. So that's the stuff that we really want to analyze. But we have this this problem because that stuff uh, is very very fragile. It has the crushing strength of soft snow. Uh, so if if you throw that at 10 miles a second into our atmosphere, it will burn up and make really beautiful meteor showers, uh, like the Perseids that you can go outside and watch. But none of that stuff makes it to the ground. So um, this is the problem in my field in in cosmic chemistry and particularly the people that want to study the most primitive stuff is we want that cometary material. But we have, so we have two options really. Uh, we can go up and try to get, collect that cometary material. Uh, we use uh, U-2 spy planes. So the, uh, there are the spy planes that we used in the Cold War to spy on the Russians. Uh, they fly at um, 100,000 feet or more. So they fly very, very high. 
and have silicon oil detectors underneath their wings. So they fly around for hours and hours and collect just a few of these very fragile grains that we think are cometary, uh, small cometary rocks. Uh, yeah. So that's one, one source of that collection. Those are called interplanetary dust particles. And uh, the other option we have really is to send space missions up and, and go to a comet and collect it and bring that stuff back to Earth. Got it. And when you are really searching for the birth of our solar system in a way, what is the purpose of that? Like when you explain to people what you do for a living, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. how, do you, how do you explain sort of the grand mission that you guys are after? Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's become really more important in the last 10 or 20 years once we figured out that we maybe are not so unique here in the solar system. There's other planetary systems like us. So somehow at, from astronomy, we know um, that these planetary systems started from this galactic material, interstellar material that's just gas and very simple dust. And we went from this, this collection of gas and dust into this incredible diversity of worlds that we see, uh, these fantastic moons of Saturn, Jupiter, and the terrestrial planets, and all this amazing diversity we see, uh, somehow that process happened. And to me, that's one of the most scientifically important processes uh, that we can study. So uh, my goal is to try to, to understand that chemical, and it involves all the different types of science. So how did we get life on this planet? So there's astrobiology here, there's chemistry, there's physics to go from this very primitive stuff, this this collection of gas and dust into the amazing diversity of worlds we see in our system and also the diversity of planets we see in other planetary systems. So to me, that's that's really the most important scientific question out there. And I'm very lucky to be able to work on it and especially to be able to work on actual samples that we can study with this incredible precision that we can with with these advanced analytical lab tools that we have now. And tell me a little bit about what those lab tools are like. It sounds like the stuff that you're looking at is just incredibly small. How are you looking at it? Right, right. So we need the biggest tools to study the smallest stuff, and that's kind of how it works. So we we use, um, for example, synchrotron synchrotron facilities that are city blocks in diameter. So we can't take that stuff to space, so we have to bring space to it. And these things are so large and the most advanced ones are so expensive and large that it really pays to bring this stuff back. So we use uh, electron microscopes. We have three up in my lab uh, at Wash U in St. Louis. Um, we use synchrotron, so we use x-rays uh, that can tell us the uh, chemical and, and uh, molecular bonding information uh, in these very, very small grains. Um, we use uh, mass spectrometry techniques. So I use... Um, a technique called SIMS, which is secondary ion mass spec, and that gives us uh, the isotopes. So really, the isotopes are the really hard thing and the hard thing to measure, and those require, you know, big electromagnets that weigh tons, you know, to get the kind of precision we need. And these are really the largest and most expensive instruments and really give us um, really give us the most important information. Um, so that's kind of the end game for us is first we do the chemical characterization using electron microscopes, and then we use the mass spectrometry to get, get the isotopic information. And what's the sort of nature of the science itself at this point? Have, have there been sort of big leaps and bounds in, in the tools that you have at your disposal? Yeah, in the last uh, 10 years, it seems like 
the tools have really caught up with the samples, so to speak. So like I said, the most interesting samples are these cometary samples, and uh, they have the smallest grain size. So uh, you can look at an igneous rock that has relatively large crystals because they, they crystallize from a melt, and you get, you know, you get millimeter, centimeter size crystals, and those are relatively straightforward to analyze. So anything below about a micrometer, you know, human hair is about 100 micrometers. So anything below about a micrometer is very, very difficult to analyze. So in the last several years, there, there's been a few tools that have um, really helped us um, to characterize these things. One's is called, one is called a focused ion beam instrument. So we're able to go in and extract um, an individual uh, one micron or less grain using this focused ion beam technique. And we have one of these tools in my lab. So you have this this sample that's an inch, you know, we have a, a rock thin section that's about an inch in diameter, and we can identify something very, very cool that's one micron in diameter and pull that out with a beam of focused ions and then analyze that with transmission electron microscopy, which could give us essentially atomic resolution. So we can see atomic layer crystal structures and see if there's any um, uh, deformations in the crystal defects in the crystal, which will tell us how it formed. Did it condense from a gas? Um, so that technique is relatively new, and it's it's something that a lab uh, like mine, which isn't a huge lab, could could have access to. So uh, now we have, you know, on an inch size rock sample, we have a thousand years worth worth of work we can do on these things. So that's wow. really come to bear in the last few years. Yeah, that's great. So are you going back to specimens that were maybe picked up decades ago? kind of going back to them? Yeah, yeah. And that's the great thing about sample return. So the Apollo uh, Apollo samples from the moon are a great example. These were collected in, in 1969 through the early 70s. And there are groundbreaking papers that came out in the last couple months about the formation of the moon. Um, we, didn't, we didn't have those tools in the early 70s when the astronauts brought those samples back. Um, and it's like we're discovering new things. We're finding... Uh, water contents in the moon that we didn't know were there in the early 70s. So these are all new discoveries from old samples uh, because those techniques are finally catching up to the samples. I mean, it's been fascinating. You can keep studying the lunar samples like those will be good for another, you know, as long as we have them because those techniques keep getting better. And if there was sort of a dream sample that you could get with a snap of your fingers, something from anywhere in the universe, what would you say <laughs> it would be? Oh, that's a good question. So uh, I would like to have uh, kilograms of a comet sample, and we may be getting that. NASA just um, uh, selected two possible missions for the next big kind of flagship missions, and one of them is a, a mission to go to a comet and take about a kilogram from the comet nucleus and bring it back to Earth. That will be cool. uh, tw 2032 or something, so it won't be, it'll be for a while. We'll uh, still be I'd alive. Love <laughs> we'll still be alive. Hopefully I'll still be doing this kind of stuff. So that would be great to understand um, our solar system formation. But I think the question you asked earlier is really interesting. I'd love to have one gram of, of comets from 10 different planetary systems. That would be fantastic. And that would tell us, um, that would allow us to answer this question of, of, is our solar system unique? Did we did something happen that allowed um, a planet like Earth to have enough water and the right conditions to form life? I think these are the very important questions. 
this uniqueness question that we can't really get at right now because we don't have, uh, at least in cosmochemistry, those samples um, from other planetary systems. We have individual grains, but I'd love to have, you know, a gram, just a gram from all these uh, different planets that we're finding would be great too. Yeah. And I, I think um, you've also talked a little bit about sea sediments. Um, why, why is that helpful in your field to look at? Yeah, so so another project I'm I'm looking at is uh, looking at sea uh, uh, cores from from sea sediments, and those are very interesting because they're a, a kind of a high fidelity record of of extra solar extra um, terrestrial material that is falling into Earth. So these sea sediments in the Indian Ocean have a very low sedimentation rate. I think it's like a millimeter per thousand years or something like that. So it's basically dead fish that are falling down, as well as uh, meteorites and other things from outside of the uh, outside of the Earth's atmosphere. So um, uh, about a year, a year and a half ago to two years ago, there is um, announcement of this detection of an isotope of iron called iron 60 in these deep sea sediments. And these, um, so iron 60 is very interesting because it's a really a smoking gun for uh, supernova material. So it's very hard to make iron 60 in um, relatively high abundances, except in an atmosphere of an exploding star. So uh, once they've identified those um, counts above background, we say for uh, iron 60 in these deep sea sediments, and it was only in this, this sediment layer from about a million years ago. So it's, and this was all over uh, the earth. So different uh, drill cores in different oceans, as well as from the moon, we found this iron 60 spike. So that gives us a really good clue that a supernova exploded about a million years ago and rained down this material onto earth and onto the moon, really onto the whole uh, solar system. So uh, I just got about 200 grams of this uh, sea sediment and we're dissolving it in acids and trying to find those grains from that supernova. Uh, that were responsible for that iron 60 signal. So it's a really hard project. There's, we have 200 grams and the abundance of these supernova grains, I think is a, a few tens of parts per trillion, right? So that's a very small amount of, of very small grains in this bag of mud that I have. So uh, we're trying to understand that to understand really the modern uh, impact of our galactic environment on the earth. So, um, how often these supernovas go off, what kind of stars uh, do those, uh, were those supernova before they exploded, and really trying to do kind of modern astrophysics with our grains. And uh, if we can get these isotopic compositions of these grains, we can do these kind of supernova nucleosynthesis calculations um, that you can only do theoretically. So once we get those measurements, we can really understand these supernova nucleosynthesis pro uh, processes that are happening in the modern galaxy. So the only other way to do this is to do um, some astronomical observations and some theoretical calculations. But if we can actually have these grains in hand, which I think they're sitting in that mud at a very, very low level, um, then we can really understand how all of, really all of the elements um, and isotopes in the universe form. So, uh, and it's not feasible at all to go to a supernova uh, light years away and bring stuff mm -hmm. back, right? That's never gonna happen. So it came to us, so it's really uh, a useful um, endeavor to look for these things. And we're just starting, and we're just starting the search now. I think it will take a year or two, but I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to find something. 
And a reminder, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Science Island on KACRLP 96.1 FM. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Ryan Ogliori, a cosmochemist and expert who is an assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, Dr. Ogliori, you have done some lecturing and talking about the fact that we here on Earth are not an island. Tell me a little bit more about that and why that's important to talk about. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I think we're reminded of that by um, these fireballs and, and um, uh, asteroid encounters that, that we have now. So about, about four years ago now, or close to five years ago, there's a very large meteor in Russia, in Chelyabinsk, Russia. Um, and that was a lot larger than we, we thought could happen on kind of uh, relatively short time frames at Earth. There is another very large one in uh, the early 1900s in Siberia as well. So I think it's important to understand that, um, you know, these impacts can happen. Um, they possibly are what seeded life on this planet. So uh, this idea of us not uh, being totally isolated here on Earth and these these kind of cosmic effects can be very important. I think important thing for us to understand that um, we live in this environment and this environment affects affects us too um, so uh, after after that impact uh, in 2000 February 2013 in Russia uh, we there's been a little bit more funding to search for these near-earth asteroids and that allowed that will allow us to track uh, potentially hazardous uh, asteroids entering the earth's atmosphere as well as identifying things like this interstellar comet that was in the news for the past couple of weeks. So we're able to see these very dark, very small bodies that are moving close to the sun. Uh, and that's interesting for protecting our planet, which is an important thing for us to do um, as Earthlings on this planet. And with the capabilities to do it, we should do it. And also to identify, um, you know, these small, interesting bodies that we wouldn't see otherwise. And as Earthlings who have a vested interest in continuing life on this planet, is there anything that we could do if there was like a huge asteroid heading our way? Is there something like, is there a, some plan that I'm not aware of to protect us all? There's no plan. And that's, uh, <laughs> if we, wow. if we, yeah, there, there's no plan in place, but if we had enough time, there's something we could do about it. Right. So I think, um, if it's large enough and it's far enough away and we identify it um, ahead of time, there is something we can do about it. But there's um, there's a privately funded project um, that's looking to uh, deploy a space telescope for this exact uh, exact purpose. And if uh, that gets funded, then then we're going to be uh, better off than we are now. Um, yeah, there's a couple different things you can do if you find something that's relatively far away to make sure it doesn't. Uh, cause an extinction level type impact on this planet. Um, if it's, you know, too close and, and too late, then we're out of luck. But luckily, these things to, seem to be, um, you know, very rare. But again, that, that impact um, over Russia five years ago told us maybe they're not quite as rare as we think. And the nature of these, um, these asteroid impacts um, creates kind of a directed shock wave. So the size of the body creates uh, really an outsized uh, uh, destructive uh, uh, force on our planet because it's directed along a line to the ground. And we just learned about that 
in the last couple of years that um, a relatively small body is much more destructive than we think it is. So mm-hmm. it really pays to, to observe these things and identify the potentially hazardous ones. It certainly does. Well, on that fairly ominous note, <laughs> Dr. Ogliori, we're so glad that you're in this field. Um, thank you so much for explaining a little bit about you know, what you're focused on. Um, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Leah. So that's it for today's show. Thanks again to my co-host, Grant Burningham. Thanks again to Dr. Ogliori. We'll see you soon.